Welcome. I guess maybe you should welcome me to Soma Downtown. Uh, Soma Downtown, it is good to see you. My name is Josh. Uh, I am, uh, believe it or not, pastors of Soma Church. Uh, I primarily serve uh, at the Midtown Congregation, and I got the opportunity to come down and visit you guys for the first time a couple months ago, so really excited uh, to be with you guys again, to see some new faces and to see some faces that I haven't seen in a long time, and so thankful uh, for you guys. So we are going to be continuing uh, the series that you guys started a couple weeks ago in the book of Exodus. Today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, open it up to Exodus chapter 2. I'm actually going to pick it up at the end of Exodus chapter 1, and then we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 2. So here's what the Word of the Lord says, Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, child went and called, or, so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, but the book of Exodus is one of those books. It's an ancient story, and yet it's a story that's resonated with people all down through the ages. And that's one of the reasons that we're pressing into this book. Not just because we simply want to know some data about what maybe happened to a group of people 3,500 years ago in the Middle East. But this is a book, and this is a story that is eminently applicable to us today. That's why if you go down through history, you find that the book of Exodus has resonated with so many people throughout the book of throughout throughout the, the course of history because the fact is that when you come to this book, this isn't just a story of a group of people a long time ago. This is the story of us. This is a story that intersects with our lives. This is our story. And one of the things that makes it so applicable to us today is that it's not just our story, it's God's story. And it shows how God's story intersects with our story. And if you think about your own story and you think about the things that you've walked through and you think about the things that you are walking through and you think about the things that you might walk through in the future, this is the story about how God intersects with that story, how God steps into our stories, into the brokenness of our stories, into the things that we don't understand in our stories. And it's the story that shows us how God brings redemption, how God frees us from sin and suffering and, and the enemy that oppresses us. 
and how he draws us out of slavery and how he draws us to himself and how he makes himself our, uh, makes himself our God. Yes, he makes himself our God. Got to make sure you get that right. He makes himself our God and he makes us his people. It's a story all about how God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. So like many of you, uh, a couple weeks ago, I watched the Super Bowl. And you can, you can just chalk it up, like just plan it. Every year around the Super Bowl, you're going to get, you know, your nachos together or whatever you're going to eat, and you're going to turn on the pregame, and there's going to be a story on the pregame about redemption. You're going to hear someone talking about some guy missed a kick, he missed a field goal, or he fumbled in the end zone, or he did something else stupid. And you're going to hear how he's got the opportunity to redeem himself. And we love these kind of stories. Like, truth be told, I've got like 60 episodes of A Football Life on my DVR. And I just eat them up like candy because I love these kind of stories of redemption. And maybe football's not your thing. Maybe different movies are your thing. Maybe TV shows are your thing. Maybe just literature is your thing. But one of the things that resonates with us is a story of redemption. And here's why. Because it's not just a story out there, because it's a story that we want to take part in. We all know that we need redemption. We all hunger for redemption. If you take a moment and you are just honest with yourself and you're honest about the world around you, you realize, I am deeply broken. And the world around me is deeply broken. And I want desperately to see it made right. That's why the book of Exodus has resonated with people all throughout history. And that's why it resonates still with us today, because it is all about redemption. But here's the thing about redemption. Here's the thing about true redemption. True redemption isn't as simple as kicking a field goal or scoring a touchdown. It's not as simple as getting a new job. It's not as simple as getting into a new relationship. It's not as simple as cleaning up your act or turning over a new leaf or trying to work harder or trying to make something of yourself. It's not as simple as trying to prove yourself, which is what so many of us live our lives for. Because when you really begin to understand who you are as a human being, you realize that your problems go deeper than you ever imagined. They go down to the very core of who you are, that you have problems that you cannot fix on your own. And that's ultimately why the story of the Exodus is such good news. Because this is not a story. The book of Exodus, nor the entire Bible, is not a story about you trying to redeem yourself. It is a story about God redeeming you. It is a story about God rescuing you out of slavery. It is a story about God doing for you and me what we are powerless to do for ourselves. And it's a story about God taking the pain and the suffering and the heartache and the things that we cannot comprehend why they're showing up in our lives and taking that and turning it around into something that is more beautiful than you could ever possibly imagine. And some of you right here today, you know that you need that. Some of you know that you need that. And you come in here and your life is a mess and your soul is a mess. And maybe you look like you got all your crap together on the outside, but on the inside, you're feeling enslaved. And some of you feel that right now. Some of you don't feel that right now, but if you just wait a couple years, you're gonna feel that. At some point in your life, you're gonna recognize the depths of your powerlessness and the depths of your inability to manage things and the depths of your brokenness and the depths of your need. And some of us in this room, we're enslaved and we don't even know it. To use a circa 2000 illustration, uh, you're plugged into the matrix. 
And you think that you're free. You think that, 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 that you're, you are autonomous, but you are blind to your slavery. So wherever it is, wherever it is that you are today, this is God's story of redemption for you. Not just the person sitting next to you and not just some group of people who lived 3,500 years ago. This is God's story of redemption for you. Let's look at the story. Exodus chapter 2, or Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So last week, Pastor Kent preached... uh, Chapter 1, Tayshawn set us up a couple of weeks ago um, with an intro to Exodus. And so we're picking up in the midst of that story, where God's people, where the people of Israel are living in Egypt. And, and the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, this kind of God figure on earth, he's seen how, the, how God has increased the people of Israel. And how they continue to increase and multiply. So he begins to get worried about them, and he enslaves them, and he tries to crush them with backbreaking labor. And yet God is still faithful and God continues to cause the people of Israel to increase and multiply. So Pharaoh commands these midwives, I want you to kill all the, all the newborn sons. He's trying to breed out this people. But at the end of chapter one, you see the midwives feared God rather than Pharaoh. And so they let the babies live. And now Pharaoh's desperate. Now he is just obsessed with destroying the Hebrews. He doesn't even try to hide it anymore. He just commands the people of Egypt to throw all the male Hebrew children into the river. Look, what you have here is a situation of mob violence where you literally have people ripping children from their mother's arms and drowning them. And it is into that situation, that kind of a horrific, oppressive genocidal situation that God sends a deliverer. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, those of you who are parents, you know how hard it is to keep a child quiet. Those of you who aren't parents, you also heard how hard it is to keep a child quiet. I, like, I can't imagine this. There are times where I come home and like, I pull in my driveway and I hear my kids screaming, which they're always screaming shouts of joy, just so that you know. But they're happy that, they're happy that I'm home, right? right. Kids, are, kids, are, kids are loud. Kids make noise. And so how do you keep a baby quiet? How do you keep a baby hidden? Can you imagine the fear and the terror if you knew that if your if your neighbors heard your kids they could rip them from your arms and they could drown them right now there is a a stage adaptation of the diary of Anne frank playing at the irt at the indiana repertory theater we're going to see it uh, this week and if you've read the diary of Anne frank you know that there's this entire family there's this entire jewish family that's had to go into hiding from the nazis and and they live in this this kind of secret apartment and and they can't talk at certain times of the day and they can't walk around at certain times of the day and they can't turn the lights on at certain times of the day because someone might find out that they're there and they might be, be turned over and put in a concentration camp now imagine trying to do that with a crying baby That's how terrifying this is. And so Moses' mother does the best that she can, and she hides him for three months, but she can't hide him forever. And yet, and yet, it's interesting in the text here, she knows that there is something special going on here. Now, all mothers know that about their babies, I realize that, but she knows there's like some deeper insight. Look at this, look at verse two. It says, 
says Moses' mother saw that he was a fine child. Now, that doesn't mean that he's just cute. Every parent thinks their kids are cute, even if they are not cute. So it's not just he's cute. Here's what you need to know about the book of Exodus. And I know Tayshawn set this up a couple of weeks ago when he introed the book of Exodus. But the book of Exodus is part two in a five-part series. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all kind of different pieces of one story that Moses, this baby who grows up, that Moses is writing about the people of Israel, about where the world came from, about where the people of Israel came from. And you get to Exodus chapter 2, and here's literally what this text says in Hebrew. It literally says, she saw that he was good. She saw that he was good. Now, if you have read the book of Genesis, you've heard that before. Genesis chapter 1, God has spoken creation into existence. God speaks and says, let there be light. He creates light and darkness and the heavens and the earth and men and women. And then Genesis 1.31, God says this, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. She saw that he was good. He saw that it was good. There is a clue in the text here. The same God who spoke the universe into existence is going to bring a new creation. He is going to reverse the curse of sin and death. In a world that is broken by sin and death and evil and oppression and suffering, God is going to make all things new. And in part, he's going to do it through this baby who's born under a death sentence. You can see this idea all over the book of Exodus. Look at verse 3. When she saw that she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds reeds by the river bank. Just stop for a moment and think, like, let that settle on you. How awful to place your child in a basket in the river, and you don't have any other options left. All you do is you step back and you hope and you pray. And you don't really even know what you're hoping or what you're praying for. Thankfully, we don't live under that kind of oppression. But have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you are losing the most precious things in the world, that they are being ripped away from you? Your children, your parents, your spouse, your marriage, your career, your health, hopes and your dreams and your aspirations and sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any hope and like all you can do is just let go and these things have been ripped from your hands and you just like pray to whoever might be listening and you just hope and you don't even really know what you're hoping that God will do and just kind of open up your hands and yet for Moses's mother she has heard of a God who steps into those kind of situations She has heard of a God who rescues his people out of the floodwaters of death. Here's why I say that. Look again, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. Now, again, if you are a Hebrew speaker and if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, you're hearing something that you've heard before. Because this Hebrew word, basket, it only shows up one other time in the entire Bible. Do you know where it is? It's in the story of Noah. And it's the word translated ark. So that's what he's saying here. She placed him in an ark and she placed him in the water. Do you see what God's doing here? 
If you go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 says that the world was covered with water, that, there was, that the face of the deep, that these chaotic waters were covering the world. And then what did God do? God spoke, and he brought dry, dry ground out of the water, and he caused life to begin to spring up. And he created human beings, and human beings messed everything up. And, and you see that sin and evil start to pollute the world, and God needs to start over again. And how does he do it when you get to Genesis 6? He does it by flooding the earth and by rescuing Noah and his family out of the floodwaters. And here you see that God is doing it again that humanity is so deeply and hopelessly entrenched in sin that things are so irreparably broken that God is going to have to step in and that God is going to recreate. But this is the God who doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't give up on his creation. This is the God who makes all things new. This is the God who delivers his people out of the waters of death. And so here's this little baby, and this baby is floating in a basket in the river. And this is not like, you know, your hot tub. This is not like the lazy river at Holiday World. This is the Nile River, which is the longest river in the world, over 4,000 miles long, and it's filled with crocodiles. And that's scary enough. But for the ancient people, they actually believe that there's something else going on. For the ancient people, they, the ancient Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They, they had a river god. The god was named Hopi. There's Hopi right there. He's actually pictured as a twin deity. He, he unites upper and lower Egypt. And the Egyptians worship this god of the Nile. And so here comes Pharaoh, and he says, throw the babies into the river. And it, it's murder, and it's genocide, but even beyond that, this is human sacrifice. He is sacrificing an entire race to the god of the Nile. And this is where the one true god steps in. This is where the one true God steps in and says, I am going to show you who the one true God is. I am the Lord. I am the sovereign of heaven and earth. I am the God who delivers my people out of the waters, who delivers my people out of the hand of Pharaoh, who delivers my people out of all the false gods of Egypt. And I am supreme over the forces of nature, and I am supreme over the course of history, and I am supreme over the gods of the nations, and I am supreme even over all the forces of evil. Look how he delivers his people. Look at verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Look at this passage and look how God is sovereignly orchestrating this behind the scenes. Pharaoh's daughter just happens to go down to the Nile at the time when Moses, as a baby, just happens to be floating by in a basket. And it just so happens, thankfully, that she's not a genocidal maniac like her father. And it just so happens that her heart is moved with compassion. And it just so happens that her compassion for this baby outweighs her fear of her father. And it just so happens that Moses' 
sister is there. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter is actually willing to pay Moses' mother to raise her own child. And it just so happens that Moses, when he is older, is going to grow up and he's going to be raised in the palace of Pharaoh where he is educated like a prince of Egypt. Acts 7.22 tells us this, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Here's what God's doing. God has providentially placed Moses in Pharaoh's own house, where he is going to get the best education in the world, where he is going to learn the inner workings of the most powerful empire in the world so that one day he can bring it down and he can deliver God's people. God has sovereignly placed Moses behind enemy lines. God is raising up a deliverer for his people in the very house of their enemy. God is using this horrible, unjust, oppressive, genocidal decree to raise up a savior for his people. So here's what Pharaoh's trying to do. Pharaoh thinks he's destroying the people of God, but he is actually destroying himself. Here's how I picture Pharaoh. There he is, right there. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, maybe, some of you guys don't know who this is. This is Wiley Coyote. He's this old school, uh, you know, uh, cartoon character. And think about Wiley Coyote. He's always out there, and he's always trying to catch the Roadrunner. So he'll strap a rocket to himself, and he ends up blowing himself up. Uh, he'll rig up a boulder to try to catch the, the Roadrunner, and he ends up crushing himself. And in a much more sinister evil, wicked way. That's what, that's what Pharaoh's doing. Like you see this all throughout the book of Exodus. He becomes obsessed with destroying the Hebrews and he hardens his heart over and over and over again to the point where he eventually destroys himself. Now here's the thing. By the grace of God, I've never tried to kill anyone. By the grace of God, I've never attempted genocide. And yet I see this same impulse in my heart. And if you pay attention to your heart, you will see the same impulse in your heart and you will see the same impulse in the people that you love. Because this is how sin works. This is how sin always works. This is the way it works in our hearts. This is the way it works in Pharaoh's heart. It makes you stupid. It makes you self-destructive. Sin is the suicide of the soul and it doesn't just hurt other people. It destroys us. Pharaoh here becomes intoxicated with power. He thinks, I'm a god on the earth. And so when his power is challenged, he becomes so obsessed with winning that it eventually destroys him. And he goes from enslaving people to murdering people to attempting genocide. As you keep reading the book of of Exodus, he keeps subjecting himself and his people to these terrible plagues. Eventually, he ends up drowning himself and his armies in the Red Sea because he has made an idol out of his power. So that's what it was for Pharaoh. Let me ask you, what is it for you? What's the thing that you can't give up? What's the thing that you are obsessed with having? What is the thing that you are willing to kill yourself for? Some of us in this room have experienced this uh, with the struggle of addiction. And we know what it is to be enslaved to something and to keep going back to it even when it's killing us. And for some of us, that's a substance, but for some of us, that's something else. For some of us, it's our work. For some of us, it's sex. For some of us, it's porn. For some of us, it's body image. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's control. For some of us, frankly, it's just that other person that we have to have. And see, the fact is, we don't just need to be set free from the Pharaoh out there. We need to be set free from the Pharaoh in here. 
We need to be set free from the self-destructive impulses of our own sin. We need a Savior who's not just going to change our circumstances. We actually need a Savior who can go so far as to change our hearts. And that's what God promises to do. God says, I am not giving up on you. I am going to save you not just externally. I am going to save you from this internal oppression of sin that you have living inside of you. God says, I am going to accomplish my purposes. And God is sovereign. God always does what God says he's going to do. He is sovereign over every last detail of this story. Look at verse 10. He's even sovereign over the name of this child. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, the name Moses is is fascinating. Uh, In Egyptian, Moses means son. So if you've ever heard of of Tutmos, if you've ever heard of Ramses, these are pharaohs who were were called sons of the gods. But in Hebrew, the the, the name Moses sounds like the, the word to draw out. He's drawn out of the water. When he was absolutely helpless, he was rescued and he was drawn out by the sovereign hand of God. And God is actually going to use Moses to draw his people out of Egypt and to draw them through the waters of the Red Sea. God is the one who draws out. God is the one who sovereignly rescues his people when his people can't rescue themselves. God is the one who brings good out of evil. God is the one who brings life out of death. And listen, here's how I know that he makes good on that promise. Because 1,500 years after Moses, he sent a better Moses. 1,500 years after Moses, he sent another baby who was born under a death sentence. And this time there was an evil king. This time the king's name was Herod, and he tried to have this baby killed. But his parents hid him, and they took him down to Egypt. And then his father drew him back up out of Egypt and he drew him through the water of the river at his baptism and he eventually plunged him under the flood of death itself. See, Jesus didn't escape suffering. Jesus didn't escape the power of death. Jesus didn't escape the grave. He was plunged underneath the flood of death and he was buried in the grave. But God drew him out. He drew him out of the depths He drew him out of the grave. He drew him out of death. And now Jesus is the one who draws us out. Listen, we are absolutely helpless. We can no more save ourselves than a baby floating in a basket in the Nile River. But God is the one who comes to our rescue. God is the one who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so I just simply want to ask you today, I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. Do you know what that's all about? Like, have you experienced that? Have you experienced what it is to be rescued by God? I'm not asking if you're a moral person. I'm not asking if you're a religious person. I'm not asking if you're trying really hard and you're doing your best to redeem yourself because that's the whole point. You can't redeem yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. You and I need to be rescued. Like a helpless baby that can't do anything but trust its mother. You trust Jesus in his death and resurrection. So for some of you, the question is, have you experienced that? For some of you, you have experienced that. Like something has dropped, the pain has dropped in your heart, and and you've experienced that. And, And the call for you is simply to go public with that fact. 
That's what we do. That's why Jesus gave us the picture of baptism, because the picture of baptism is, is a picture of the fact that we have died with Christ and that we have risen with Christ, that he has brought us out of the water, that, that we say, I deserve death, but I have already died with Christ, and my old self was drowned, and he raised me up to new life, and he has drawn me out of the waters. And for some of us in this room, for some of us, we're just walking through hard times, or maybe we're not now, but we will in the future. And you're walking through those hard times and you're walking through the waters and you feel like you're drowning. I try to read a psalm uh, every morning. I have a hard time praying most mornings. Um, and, and I find that a, that a psalm often helps me to pray. And so a couple weeks ago I was in Psalm 9 and these verses landed on me. Psalm 9, verse 15. Nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. Like that's, that's what's happening in the book of Exodus. That's what's happening to Pharaoh. He is being snared in the work of his own hands. Now, thankfully, I have never been hunted by a genocidal Egyptian Pharaoh. But I do have an enemy who seeks to destroy my soul. And whether you know it or not, you do too. And you see him talked about all throughout the Bible. They, they call him the serpent. Or they call him the accuser. They call him the devil. Or they call him Satan. And listen, I am not one of those people who sees the devil's face in my grilled cheese sandwiches. And yet I do believe, I do believe that he's real. And I have seen how he sets traps for me at different times in my life. I've seen how he tried to destroy me when my first marriage fell apart. But I've also seen how God used that to show me my need for him. I've seen how he tried to destroy me through sin and temptation and my own stupidity and my own failures. And yet I've also seen how God used that to show me the beauty of his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy in a way that I never would have learned otherwise. I've seen how he tried to drown me under a flood of depression. But I've also seen how God used that to drive me to depend on him and to find my joy in him. I have seen how every time the enemy tries to destroy me, God turns his weapons around and he uses them for my good. Because that is the way God works. That's what God does. He takes the weapons of the enemy and he turns them around. And he defeats the enemy with his own weapons. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He snared the enemy in the work of his own hands. Let me, like, here's what happened at the cross. Satan tried to condemn us. That's literally what his name means. It means the accuser. It means the slanderer. And right now, he is trying to accuse some of you in this room. Right now, he is trying to slander you. Right now, some of you are hearing this voice in your mind, thinking that there's no hope for you, thinking about all the terrible things you've done, thinking, I better do something to make myself right. I better do something to make up for all of that. I've got to do something because I'm so bad that, that I'm covered with guilt and with shame, and God could never love me, and God could never accept me. That's what Satan wants you to believe. And Jesus goes to the cross and Jesus says, you know what? They are guilty, but I take their guilt. I take their shame. I take all of their sin and I die in their place and I rise again so that now if you trust in Jesus, God the Father loves you and accepts you just as much as he loves and accepts Jesus Christ. See, he takes the weapons of the enemy and he turns them around. The enemy thought that he could triumph, that he could defeat Jesus by killing him. But what did Jesus do? 
Jesus went to the cross. Jesus used his own death to defeat the power of death. And through his death, he makes us fully alive. See, this isn't just true for Moses, and it's not just true for Jesus. This is true for you and me. If you belong to Jesus, he uses all things. Listen, all things. Even the most evil, the most wicked things that the evil one brings against you, he uses them for your good. And that doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean that there are not tears and that there's not heartache and you don't feel like you're dying at times. Think about this story. Moses is rescued out of the water. But I'm sure there were other babies that were not. And some of you in this room, you've experienced that. Some of you have prayed and you've trusted God and you've cried out to him and your child still died. And your marriage still fell apart. And, and the test still came back that you had cancer or whatever it is in your life. And you can't understand why God would allow that. And if I'm being honest, there are times where I can't understand that either. But that's where the cross of Jesus is such good news. John Stott said this, and it really resonates with me. He said, I could never believe in God if it weren't for the cross of Jesus. I could never believe in God. If God was just a God who just lives up there in the heavens and he's just kind of like watching all of us from a distance and he's just kind of like remote and he avoids all of this suffering. If God's just out there, if God doesn't care, if God doesn't know what I'm walking through, then, then I've got no time for that kind of a God. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that, sh- that, that, that shows up in Jesus Christ. He's the God who steps in. He's the God who experiences life with us, who experiences the brokenness and the heartache and the suffering of the world. The God who doesn't try to circumvent or try to avoid suffering. The God who doesn't try to avoid death. He's the God who experiences it so that he can overcome it. And here's what that means. Here's the takeaway for your life. When you go through the fire, And when you go through the flood, this is what the cross reminds you. It reminds you God doesn't just work in spite of terrible circumstances. God works through terrible circumstances. Let me say that again. God doesn't just work in spite of terrible circumstances. God works through terrible circumstances. There's an old hymn that I love. It's called How Firm a Foundation. Third verse says this. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. I will be with you. I am not walking away from you. I am not abandoning you. I am not just staying up here in the heavens where it's nice and safe and clean. I will be with you in the heartache, in the brokenness, in the tears, when everything is falling apart. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you, it says, your troubles to bless. Not to help you avoid your troubles. Not to, not to kind of give you a little, you know, shot of, of religion so that you feel you can pretend that your troubles aren't there. I will be with you in the heartache when your soul is being torn apart. I will be with you in those troubles and I will actually bless you through your troubles because I'm not just a God who works in spite of terrible circumstances. I am a God who works through terrible circumstances. So listen, whatever it is that you're walking through, 
Whatever it is that you have walked through, whatever it is that you will walk through in the future, this is the God who will draw you out of the waters, who will raise you up, who will give light in the midst of darkness, who will bring life out of death, who will take the ugliest thing that you can imagine, and he will use it to make you into something more breathtakingly beautiful than you can possibly fathom. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the hope that we remind ourselves every week as we go to the Lord's Supper. I I want you to think about this just as as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Every week, here's what we do. We take this bread and we take this cup and what do we celebrate? We celebrate the murder of the Son of God. We celebrate the, the, one of the most evil acts that was ever committed. We find our ultimate hope in the greatest act of evil that was ever committed. We find our life in the death of Christ. And here's what that should mean to you. Here's what that should remind you. When you come and you take this bread and you hear the body of Christ was broken for you. And you take this cup and you hear the blood of Christ was shed for you. Here's what that should remind you of. It should remind you that whatever you are walking through, when you go through the hard times and there are no good answers and there's no silver lining and there's no good churchy kind of like, okay, he's going to turn it around and I see how he's doing this. You remember that's when God works. That's how God brings blessing. He brings it through the hard times. And you remember, he is with you in the midst of it. And you also remember, it's not always going to be this way. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again, and he conquered sin and death and hell. And one day he is returning to set all things right. And when he does, he says, we're going to eat and we're going to drink and we're going to feast together in a world where everything's made new. So as you come, come and, and eat and drink and celebrate. We'll have stations around the room. Gluten-free, I believe, is going to be up here to my right, to your left. We simply come down the aisle and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and take it and return to our seats. And, and wherever you are today, just take, take a moment before you do that just to take inventory of where you are. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe this is all alien to you, and we would love to talk with you. We would love to talk with you about what it means to trust in Jesus. Maybe you've got some intellectual questions. Maybe you've got some pain that you need to process. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, so many of us come in with pain that we need to process, and we're like, where was God in the midst of that? And so we'd love to pray with you. Pastor Kent's up here. I'll be up here as well. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to process that with you. Um, But we're going to pray, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, then come and celebrate the fact that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We try all these different things. We, we t- try different, different self-help regimens. We try... Uh, just being stronger and being a morally better person. We, we try all sorts of, of social programs. We try uh, all kinds of techniques and all kinds of initiatives to try to save ourselves. And when we're really honest with ourselves and we're really honest about the world, uh, we are deeply broken, and the world's deeply broken. But God, I thank you that you don't leave us in our helplessness. You don't leave us in our brokenness. You don't leave us in the flood of the waters that, that would overwhelm us. 
Thank you that when we walk through the fire and we walk through the flood, you are there with us in the midst of it. Thank you that you're not just some God who's remote, who, who doesn't really care about us, just some God kind of pulling the levers behind the scenes. But you're a God who has entered in. You're a God who has experienced the pain and the heartache and the suffering that we've experienced. You took our sin on yourself and you bore it in our place, Jesus, and you rose again to make us right with God. And because of that, we can have absolute confidence that you're with us. We can have confidence even when we don't know what you're doing, we don't know why you're doing it, and our hearts are breaking, we're reminded that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You're our hope, Lord. So we pray that, that as, we, as we take this bread and as we take this cup, remind us of the hope that we have in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.